0: Raise somebody's trap bar deadlift by 100 pounds, that could be perfectly reasonable and useful. Raise somebody else's trap bar deadlift 100 pounds, mm. and you just created interference to something that they either needed from a performance perspective or a health perspective, right? We can't blindly throw people into situations without concern over the consequences. Like we always look at the favorable consequences of strength training instead of the detrimental. And it's like, I'm not against strength training. I want my athletes to be as forceful as possible without taking away something important.
1: That was Bill Hartman. And you're listening to another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I appreciate you. And thanks for tuning in. I can't tell you how many guests we've had who have had Bill or previous guests on the show who have had Bill Hartman as a mentor, an influencer uh, who has played an educational role in their own process many people who have talked about things like the compression and expansion concepts and movement and strength training, the infrasternal angle archetypes and many other biomechanical concepts that are becoming slowly but surely and thankfully more mainstream in the process of how we observe movement. Bill himself is a physical therapist and educator. He is the owner of IFAS Physical Therapy in Indianapolis, Indiana and he also co-owns Indianapolis Fitness and Sports Training along with a prior podcast guest as well, Mike Robertson. On today's podcast, Bill will be going into widening our lens on movement and biomechanics, and he'll be talking about the adaptive nature of the body and what it really means when we're seeing compensation. So often we hear the term compensation and instantly think it's a terrible thing. Bill talks about what compensation actually is and how it fits with the adaptive ability of the body. He'll be talking about the nature of reciprocal movement versus more locking or force-producing oriented movements. He'll be talking about the dynamics of strength training when it can be a positive, but also the potentials of the interference effect and range of motion loss. He'll be covering concepts on external rotation and athletes who are pigeon-toed, the nature of power training for wide and narrow infrasternal uh, angle archetypes, and so much more. It was really great to have Bill on the show, especially after having so many guests who have been impacted by him and his view on human movement so i'm really excited to get this podcast going here lastly before we get started and i know many of you are familiar with the narrow and wide infrasternal angle archetypes but if you're not just a quick and probably overly generalizing definition of that we do get into the concept a lot throughout the show but the infrasternal angle is the angle that the ribs make directly below the sternum so, if that angle of the ribs is sharper than 90 degrees, that would be a narrow ISA uh, archetype. If it is wider than 90 degrees or biases wider than 90 degrees, that would represent a wide infrasternal angle archetype. And you don't have two absolute types. You're going to get a bandwidth or a spectrum of presentations with, with the ISA. But the narrow infrasternal angle type generally, the archetype, Is one who is more bouncy and elastic and rotational. So, for an extreme example of that, you could think of the really tall and skinny and whippy baseball pitcher, or perhaps an Olympic high jumper type. And on the wide ISA end of things, you have someone who is a good force producer. So, where in the narrow ISA you have an elastic individual, the wide ISA is more the strength type individual. They're good force producers. They don't have quite the rotational capabilities of their narrow counterparts and a good example of the wide say would be something like a football lineman. So, I wanted to clarify those before we get started with the show. And then finally, I wanted to highlight our show's sponsor, Lost Empire Herbs. And to be honest, about six or seven years ago, I had very little understanding of herbalism and what they can do uh, do for you in your training and athletically. But it was through meeting Lost Empire Herbs CEO, Logan Christopher, and getting into uh, originally, we were talking about visualization and mental training and the scope of strongman and things like that and that led me to trying out the Lost Empire Herbs products. Fast forward to today, herbalism represents the majority of my supplementation. I enjoy also being able to learn more about nature and plants and herbs in doing so and the herbalism has a really positive impact on my strength and energy. Uh, you may have seen herbs such as Shilajit, for example, being a common uh, supplement in strength and conditioning or for strength training. and if you want to check out Shilajit as well as some of my uh, favorite other herbs that you can get through Lost Empire, uh, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash JustFly and there you can get 15% off of your order. You can also enter the code JustFly at checkout for that 15% off. So I hope you get a chance to check out Lost Empire Herbs. They're an awesome company and that being said, let's get to the podcast here with Bill Hartman. Bill, welcome to the show. It's, it's great to finally have you on the podcast. I've definitely been looking forward to this one. So, thanks for being here.
0: Thank you. Really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. So, this, um, this is um, almost, or actually, I think it literally is 20 years after the first time that I remember hearing you or, or seeing a presentation of yours. It mm-hmm. was way back in 2003. It was Perform Better in Chicago and you were speaking on the shoulder at that time. And for some reason, it's funny because I, I actually remember uh, some of those pieces pretty clearly relative to some other elements at the seminar there. And I was actually funny enough too, and I was mentioning this before we got started with the or pushed record is when my parents were cleaning out their basement and they moved, they had an old box of some of my things. And one of the things was that perform better materials. And it was your curriculum back then in 2003. And I know that you've evolved a lot since then. Um, uh, quite a bit. Yeah, quite. Yeah. And so, yeah, just uh, I'd love to hear a little bit of the story of how... And I, I do remember, I think, I guess you could say some of the, the tests that you were doing seemed a little bit more maybe traditional, if that's a word for it, back then. Yeah. Uh, how how have you moved from that more traditional, a little bit more traditional model into where you are now?
0: Well, so you come from this structural reductionist education and so that was basically the model that i was using so it's levers and pulleys and three planes and i was using a lot of manual therapy and you know when you talk about using traditional measures i still use them what 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 it is now is a is a difference in reasoning and understanding of what you're actually actually looking at and so you know from an evolutionary standpoint it was a matter of frustration where Trying to fit everything into the traditional model, uh, you you just sort of hit these points of where progress is just brought to a screeching halt, and I got a little frustrated with that. So probably 2015 or so, just started to move away from some of the traditional representations and, and saying okay, well, what are these actual foundational principles upon which everything is based? So these are universal principles. So literally digging back into physics and trying to understand how nature works uh, all the way down from, from cellular level up to the you know a complex adaptive organism. So when you start to look at a human as a complex adaptive organism, your perspective changes quite a bit. And so now you say, okay, so we have these constraints that work in this environment. And then how does that interact? Like, what are the actual principles? What are the rules that everything has to follow? And when you start to do that, then you start to say, oh, wait a minute. Like, So movement really isn't about these levers and pulleys. I'm just a big bag of water that moves around. And it's like, okay, well, under that circumstance, then how do I actually move? And it's like, well, that's a shape change. It's not this lever and pulley system that uh, the, what was apparent based on the representative model. So, if you use a cadaveric model, right? So, I have a dead guy laying on a slab, and I kind of look at him, and he's, you know, a certain way. Then If you've ever gotten to dissect a cadaver, they typically are dry. There's no water. So, you don't get that really good representation of reality. And it does look like levers and pulleys. And so, while that can be useful, I mean, I, w- I was doing well you know with it but again it just kept hitting this impasse of okay i'm hitting a wall somewhere it's like what what is this limitation and it's like okay let's let's just start to look at reality and so starting to look at pressure management fluid influences so hydrodynamics hydrostatics because again if you're made of water that's going to be part of the 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 foundational principles How do we transfer energy under that circumstance? And and so, that starts to look at at how we apply forces, what forces are involved, how are the different segments that nobody really talked about before. So, again, if you you think about, like, what are you carrying around internally, right? I have all of this stuff that's inside of me, and that stuff moves too. And then how does that influence how I do things on the outside? And then what forces do I have to, to manage? externally. So now I have these internal forces they have to manage. I have external forces they have to manage. And then I look at this big interaction. And so, so there was just an evolutionary process. And then about 2016, I had a big whiteboard session. And a friend of mine, Adam Lacano, who's with the Phoenix Suns, was in the room at the time. And so we did this gigantic whiteboard session where all the notes that I've been taking over the years just kind of like fell into place. And there there was this obvious construction of something that was different than what we had done before and again it's just an alteration of perspective and then a change in reasoning and then over the next couple of years that evolution got got deeper and deeper and deeper and then the principles start to evolve and that's essentially what evolved into the representative model that i use now where the goal is not to Negate everything that came before, but but to answer the reasons why something would work as it as it did in the past. So manual therapy takes on a different perspective, exercises take on a different perspective. So again, it's just the the level of reasoning is what the the biggest change um, has been. And so this has been the 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 model that I've been teaching for the last I don't know, let's say twenty twenty three. So we did an intensive maybe twenty eighteen or so, and so that's basically what I've been doing the last few years.
1: Yeah, I like that you mentioned it doesn't negate what comes before. I, I think about the idea of things transcending and including. So as you like, expand your lens, all those other things are still in there, but you kind of have right. a new, you have this new lens by which to see everything.
0: Absolutely. And again, it, it's enlightening when you start to see like where the, the lack of coherence was in the structural reductionist approach, which is, we'll, we'll kind of call that the traditional uh, model or traditional representation, and you you just start to see the limitations of that perspective. I mean, are we really going to trust the perspective of an anatomical dissection that took place 2,300 years ago? So when they did the first di- human cadaver dissections, are we really are we really going to use that as our current representation? Because you look at the dissections now relative to. But the, way I'm, the way I make fun of it is is like they were using, you know, wooden spoons in their elbows to do dissections in 2300 years ago. And now the the refinement of our ability to dissect things now is just so enlightening in regards to, oh, what we thought was one muscle is really four different muscles. And then if you go down even deeper than that it's like that muscle is broken down into fasciculi and each of those fasciculi will behave differently at a certain time. And so it's a tremendous amount of depth that is available to us now. And we need to start taking advantage of that new information because what it allows us to do is just make better choices and and stronger reasons for why things worked in the past and a rationale as to, from a process standpoint, why I would do things in a certain sequence or why I would choose one activity over another rather than just saying, oh, it's a strength thing or, oh, it's a, it's a flexibility thing when there is no difference among all of those concepts. All of those things are in play all at the same time. Yeah. What we have to do is we have to recognize what is most important in that circumstance at this point in time. And then we just reverse engineer the process that that got people from point A to point B with point B, usually where people come to see me.
1: Yeah, I think that it's not just in, or my background more is in the more performance side or even the sports skill side. And I see mm-hmm. that you could call it structural reductionist, even on that layer of things. I yeah. just did a podcast with Andy Ryland and he was talking about Joe Eisenman, at youth sports and and. Develop, long-term developmental guy talks about a lot of times sport practice becomes the, it's like the three L's, it's lines, lectures, and laps. And it's just like, and I guess the lines really refers to, hey, get in lines and do this one reduce down drill that's so watered down that it doesn't, it isn't representative of the problem solving <laughs> ability of the athlete. It's so much more than that. And so, but I think what's interesting is that the answer, at least I, I think in sport, the answer is not it's actually an easy answer. It's just modulating different forms of play. It actually doesn't have to be complicated, but yet we, we can make it complicated by overly reducing things down. And so, so, all I'm trying to say is I think that that over-reductionist attitude, I see it in things like uh, different forms of skill training, different. I see it in speed training, I see it in jump training where we try to reduce things down to one little segment and put so much priority on that and we, we ignore the whole thing, that, that whole connected model.
0: Right the, the interaction the, the interaction is what is most fascinating in yeah. fact it's like when you start to look at things in r- relationship to something else and then you look at it from an evolutionary standpoint this is where like when i went to school pt school specifically we went through this whole segment of embryology with no reasoning as to why we were doing mm-hmm. it and now when you look at this you know you look at the 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 body is this amazing complex organism, you start to see, oh, this is why that was important to understand. Because if I understand more about how we're constructed and how this this system evolves, I can understand it to a greater degree. And and once again, I can reason through in a a much more effective way as to why I'm seeing the presentation before me, how they got there from whatever foundational representation they, they had. And again it just provides better reasoning better choices as far as interacting to you know achieve a desired outcome
1: yeah something you had said bill that I, I really liked is right away i wrote it down was you'd mentioned in kind of breaking away from that more reductionist model is the body is a complex adaptive organism and i love yeah. that i in sport I, I look at it as we are problem solvers you could say it simply put mm-hmm. like the body will solve problems and I just I find it so funny. I'm sure you've you've probably thought this a long time ago is someone will say, "Oh, well your your glute medius is weak." Well, well, how did it get right. weak? No one asks. I never hear anyone asking, "Well, how did it, you know, quote unquote, <laughs> get weak in the first place?" It's just like you just showed up one day and the muscle just decides to shut off, and it's like that is a, such a reductionist way of looking right. at it rather than, "Well, how did the body problem solve whatever its environment was early on to get this way versus not right. like a it's almost like looking at an adaptive view how did the body adapt purposefully to get to this point versus what just suddenly magically went wrong i guess <laughs> <laughs> well let's like, see it,
0: the, the question mark is 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 it wrong or was it the best solution under the circumstance
1: yeah
0: right and this this just happened to be the result a muscle would never get weak intentionally it might represent as a weakness because of the position that it may be in. And that position was a choice that had to be made under a specific circumstance. And so, this is, this is how literally, like, you could say that, oh, a muscle is weak as a representation. You perform an intervention, and then you perform the exact same test that you said determined that it was weak, and it is no longer the same representation. And we're talking about this span of minutes. So what magically happened? Did the muscle suddenly become strong? No, it it gained its mechanical advantage back by position. So the problem wasn't the fact that the muscle is the problem. The problem is that the system was trying to solve something, made a choice based on the circumstances, based on the constraints, the physical structure of that system, and then this was the result, right? And that's how we have to we have to look at these things rather than blaming like what it, what does it even mean that that this muscle is weak was it was it some horrible atrophy does it have some neurologic deficit it's like nobody's clear on that they're just they're just defaulting into some sort of like okay i don't really know why but this is what i'm going to blame it on right and so then they make an exercise choice and then they wonder why that in in some circumstances well if the muscle was truly the problem the muscle in and of itself then this activity should have made the change that I intended. But then that's not the problem. It's a relationship problem that has to be resolved first.
1: Yeah, with all that too, and, you know, I think that kind of blends into, well, the first uh, major or the first uh, question I had for you after the uh, kind of the initial question on the evolution of your process was that of uh, how we compensate. And I think it's, it's interesting because... I think you hear the word the term compensation, and instantly what comes to mind is, oh, that's a bad thing, and I'm sure yeah. at some point it can lead to being a problem. But speaking <laughs> of the body from that problem solving first, uh, a complex adaptive perspective, could you just speak to your thoughts on how and why the body compensates? And I know this could be like a multi lecture series. Oh, this is how you know you could compensate this way, that way. So maybe just I be mean, keeping things just as as base layer as possible but how and why the body compensates and then when does that be actually become a bad thing
0: so so let's let's kind of define what what a compensatory strategy would be okay so what we want to do is we want to do this comparatively so what we would say is we could use like textbook averages of of ranges of motion okay and that's going to be our comparator and under those circumstances so what what people might might say is that these are norms, and I would respectfully disagree that they're not norms, they're averages, because people people's ranges of motion are idiosyncratic to the individual because of their structure. But if we lined up, you know, enough people and we measure them all, we come up with this textbook average. So, there's our comparison. And this, we would say, would be a representation of relative motion. So, relative motion would be the ability of what we perceive the segments of the body to move in opposition. So, if we're talking about a knee, it's the fact that the tibia can externally rotate and the femur can internally rotate at the same time. And so we have these segments that can move in opposition. In a circumstance where we would then join segments together and they would move as one. So instead of having a knee joint that would have its relative motion, we would achieve a position in which those two segments would then move as one. That would be a compensatory strategy because it's trying to solve a problem that relative motion cannot solve. So, in the case of the the way way, where this really shows up is in the case of trying to increase force production. So, relative motion has a dampening effect on force production. So, I cannot produce maximum force in a situation where full relative motion is available. So, compensatory strategies are part of normal movement in all cases where force production has to increase. So I might see a decrease in the relative motion of any joint in any circumstance where force production mm. has, to, has to increase. If I'm taking the, the milk bottle out of the, out of the refrigerator, I have to limit how much elbow range of motion I have as I'm pulling it out of the refrigerator. Well, if I'm reducing the relative motion intentionally, this circumstance arises all the time. In athletics, where the forces are exceptionally high, if you're not compensating, you're probably not performing well. So we can't classify compensation as, as a good or a bad. We have to say that this is part of the solution to a problem. So it's normal. What I want to be able to do is recognize when it's happening and when it becomes useful from a performance standpoint, and then when does it become interference? because if I use too much compensation, then I can't dampen forces. This is a lot of cases where we'll start to see maybe pain arise or an injury. But if I, if I start to carry around these compensatory strategies, and I can't release them, and I can't recapture relative motions, relative motion would be a system that can calm itself. It's a situation where I can dampen the, the typical forces throughout the day. But again, if I'm in a circumstance where I can't do that, Now I start to put load on structure because think about this for a sec, take a lumbar spine that supposedly has five movable segments with discs in between. Typical compensatory strategy is going to be an anterior orientation of the pelvis because what the advantage there is, if I anteriorly orientate the pelvis, I can push down into the ground harder. But to do that, I have to take five movable segments and I have to jam them into a single segment. So the lumbar spine becomes a single Mm. entity. It becomes one structure instead of five different structures, okay? But to do that, I have to increase the load on that structure, okay? okay. Great for force production if it's temporary. If I walk around with that same strategy because I'm I'm training it more and more and more, and I'm getting closer and closer to making that my typical strategy because there's a there's a performance-related advantage for me to be able to recruit that strategy very quickly. But if I walk around with it, now that pressure exists all the time, mm. and there are negative secondary consequences to pressures and tensions. I reduce blood flow, right? I cause destruction of tissue over time. This is how things like facet arthropathy would occur. This is how you would get uh, discogenic changes. This is load on a joint that, that doesn't allow normal blood flow, and I get degenerative changes in a, in a joint. So, so there's this fine line between where these things are exceptionally useful, occur in normal circumstances, but then become detrimental when they do become the norm, and I can't make the favorable change back towards a system that can dampen those forces and calm itself. So, again, we can't say it's good or bad. We have to look at, say, what's the context, right? Because, again, if I'm trying to raise someone's performance... I better have a good compensatory strategy to do that because it's going to show up in all cases of performance. But again, if it becomes interference, if I start to give up something that I need from a health standpoint, that's going to be a negative secondary consequence, right? If I take somebody too far into a performance realm, I can create a negative secondary consequence where I take away a performance-related component that they needed to 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 perform. So quick example, take away a baseball pitcher's shoulder range of motion because because I've I've driven them too far into the force production side of things. And now they can't even achieve the desired position that would allow them to achieve maximum throwing velocity. right? So again, that's where it starts to show up. The way we track these things is, number one, we have to have an intention, which is the desired adaptation, right? And so we have to understand, okay, okay, how does the system adapt in certain circumstances? So if I drive force production too far in one direction, Am I taking something away that they need from a performance-related perspective or from a health-related perspective? Now I do have a detrimental compensatory strategy, right? But we have to understand that this that compensations are absolutely normal. You use them every day, whether you recognize them or not. Question mark is, is, is this helping me temporarily or is it going to become interference? And that's, that's the hard part of the job, right? Because We have to intentionally move people in certain directions under certain circumstances because we're trying to create a performance-related outcome. But we don't want to be the cause of something that takes something away that is so necessary.
1: I think it's so common to look at anything and instantly tag it good or bad. And and with compensations, it's like, oh, that's bad. Well, it's like, no, it is. (laughs) It's part of that wider lens. It's the
0: it's the negative connotation. It's the negative connotation of, of when you hear compensation. And, and if you look at it in comparison to, like I said an, a, a normal representation of relative motion where we have somebody that has like full relative motions, okay? Try to get up out of a chair with full relative motions. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. You have to you have to lock things together so they move as a single segment. Mm. That is a compensatory strategy because the relative motion, having full relative motion all the time, doesn't allow you to demonstrate. What what people would call strength, which I would I would recommend you you start to move towards the concept of force production, because strength is more of like a gym measurement versus something that we, we apply in the real world. Right? We use them all the time. They are normal. They are natural. The, the question mark is is am I am I stealing? Am I creating a detrimental secondary consequence? That's what we have to determine whether it's good or bad, because it's cool. always going to be situational. Raise somebody's trap bar deadlift by hundred pounds. That could be perfectly reasonable and useful. Raise somebody else's trap bar deadlift 100 pounds Mm. and you just created interference to something that they either needed from a performance perspective or a health perspective, right? We can't blindly throw people into situations without concern over the consequences. Like we always look at the favorable consequences of strength training instead of the detrimental. And it's like, Mm. I'm not against strength training. I want my athletes to be as forceful as possible without taking away something important
1: yeah that's like it's almost like a trick in some ways and it's not a trick but i just think it's funny because i know when i was a younger athlete all the strength gains i made for the most part were direct transfer i improved (laughs) and then i hit a point eh, somewhere in my mid to late 20s where it started to reverse itself and it's the trick i guess is just the the thing of you you get these instant gains and you think, oh yeah, like, well, I'll just keep going with this. And yeah, I I think it's also kind of funny because Dan John had said this and I just, for some reason this stuck out to me, but on a podcast that he did with me, he had mentioned, well, why is it exactly, and he was speaking in context of, I think the throws, but why exactly does lifting improve your throwing? And obviously it does, but is it the muscle mass? Is it fast twitch muscle? Is it neurological? Is it, is it pressure? Is it you know? Is it, it, it what is it exactly? I think it's a lot of things. I think that's it's the, all the, those it's, things. It's exactly, right? it's, it's a lot of things. Right. Yeah,
0: yes, it's always multifactorial. We have we have to consider that fact. But again, it's like so. This is this is why it's so important to have these key performance indicators, like not just the absolute performance, but but the thing that underlies that is like is like the ability to capture a very specific position, ability to to demonstrate uh, ranges of motion at high velocity. It's like like the minute you start to take those things away. Now you've created your own interference. It was your fault, right? It's like up to a point, very beneficial beyond that point, beyond a certain threshold. Now you're creating your own interference.
1: Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. But I think that just, that's why it's so Um, like, if you look at like lenses of worldview or something like that, and the, at the bottom, it's very reductionistic. It's either strength or not, it's either force or not force. You know, it's almost like a lot right. of people talk about that. It's, are you putting force into the ground? Well, there's a lot more to it than just that, you know? And I think the further that you get out or the more lenses you kind of expand outwards and you can see movement in different contexts, I think it, it does allow, I think ultimately the solution can still be simple, but it just allows a little bit more wisdom. As like you said, like you start to realize, you understand all these factors going on and you start to realize when your strength is now actually creating an interference effect against you, or you could relate anything to that, or you could relate a lot of things into that. Um, yeah,
0: so- can I give you? I'll just give you a oh, quick yeah, example. Sir. Yeah. So uh, one one of my one of my my pitchers worked with him through high school. Got him full credit to him. He's a, he's a he's a great athlete. Tapping like low nineties for peak throwing velocity, which is awesome. And I think at the time he was trap bar deadlifting about four hundred fifty pounds, and then went off to college. So we don't control the, that atmosphere. And he came home and he said, hey, I'm trap bar deadlifting um, 600 pounds now. And, and it's like, great. And mm-hmm. then you put him on the table and now we've got these range of motion deficits. And he says, oh, yeah, by the way, he said, my VLO has been dropping con- mm-hmm. you know, precipitously. And he's like, now I'm in like the mid mid to low 80s and I'm not, not hitting my top end anymore. And it's like, okay, now we have to say, okay, where are in the program do we have to address to make sure that we can recapture those things that, that we know were supportive of this previous level of performance? Like, like where's the interference? And one of those one of those things, it turned out, was that, oh, they've been just driving force production past a certain threshold. They took away the ranges of motion. And so literally, once we sort of tuned him down, like he's not weak by any stretch of the imagination, but but it, it took a little bit of, of understanding as to, oh, when he trapped bar deadlifts, he actually gives up something that he needs. And so it was just a couple of adjustments in the, in the programming and, and then you, you make the recovery of performance. And, and so again, it's just, it's just a, a matter of, again, it, it kind of as you say, it's like, like you expand the number of filters that you can see these things through and you start to see the multifactorial nature and then the relationship.
1: Yeah, yeah. Speaking of pitching, I—it's funny. I just picked up. um, I'm 39. I just started throwing the javelin again. After the last time I threw it was probably like 28, 29, and then I took like a 10 year basic hiatus. Maybe it was just not having access or a place to throw. Uh (laughs) And now I'm in Ohio, and versus you know Berkeley, California. There's not many places to go out and throw in Berkeley, California. But there's uh, there's a lot of places here in Cincinnati area. So I finally got one, and it's just funny because. In between the times when I last through, let's say I was, yeah, 27, 28 through in a meet, I don't know how many bench presses I've done, bilateral bench presses, barbell bench presses uh-huh. between then and now. And it's just funny because I can't, like if I try to touch my fingers together behind my back, kind of like the Apley's test, but then the other hand's coming over the top. Like back then, or back when I was in college, I could easily get a couple inches overlap. When I was twenty eight, maybe it was one. Now I can barely touch them, if at all. (laughs) I can't actually, to be honest. If it's a really good day and I warm up a ton, maybe I can just scrape it. But it's funny because all the javelin mobility in the world won't get me that touch, and I know it's because my rib cage (laughs) has been smushed for through, through that compensation for those years. And then the thing is, is I actually can't get in the position where I can externally rotate my arm into that long straight arm behind me in the right position compared to what I used to. So it's just like, oh yeah, that if, you know, if this was my job or my, my main sporting event, that would definitely be a compensation that I took too far. It's just, I just kind of have to laugh at it now. I mean, (laughs) but it's, you know, uh, I
0: come from a family of javelin throwers. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So my brother held the record at Purdue and then I, I went to the national junior Olympics. My sister, um, was a shot putter, disc thrower, and and javelin thrower at Purdue as well. So yeah, so I get it.
1: Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. But it's fun. It's actually really motivating for me to try to do things to kind of get to readjust like lateral compression on my rib cage and things like that, and just yeah. try to try to fix it and even it out a little bit. Bill, as you were talking, I had three notes uh, as you were talking about the compensations and and especially the thing about relative motion is so intriguing. Mm-hmm. I tried to make these three notes before I forgot about them, but. One was, it's just so interesting in the sense that like I have two children, they're five and six and like they are so bendy and you just think of children as infinite potential both physically and mentally, emotionally, like their belief systems and their learning and everything and I think that nothing, you know, nothing is in isolation either in that perspective and but I look at, you know, I look at how like bendy they are and I think to myself based off what you said for them to eventually produce more force or or be stronger or more explosive at yeah. some point it's not just them getting bigger and stronger and having more muscle it also is what you said they're also going to start to move away from just being bendy kids like my my son could just take his foot and like put it on his forehead <laughs> like I cannot do that um so at some point it's I, you know it's not just um i think it's not just what we would classify as mobility it's also like what you're saying like there also needs to be like a level of almost I don't like locking down probably isn't a good word, but like you said there's there maybe has to be less relative motion at some joints for them to start being force producers specific to the skills that they're going to be doing like would you agree with that
0: yeah so so okay, so let's let's use let's use your kids as a, as an example so the the extreme representations of what of what appears to be like joint ranges of motion is actually quite a bit beyond that, so you think about how how little of their skeleton is calcified at this point. So their constraints are different than ours. So I'm much older than you are. So my bones are a whole lot stiffer than yours are. It's like you still have most likely you have water in your bones and and the degree of water that I have in mine are much less. And so when you think about the constraints that we were talking about before, so yeah, they're going to have segmental motions, but they're also going to have a more cartilaginous representation of their of their bony structure which also bends and twists and contributes mm-hmm. to movement we have to start looking at at movement as a shape change not so much the lever and pulley representation of how joints move because there are contributions of the bony structure under all circumstances but again the kids because again for big bags of water, and they don't have the stiffness constraints of their bony structure like we do, of course, they can demonstrate much greater excursion of, of movement because they're able to, they have more options in regards to changing their physical shape. So, you know, one of the ways that they get into that position is well, they can twist their spine harder, the bones are softer, the bones actually change shape more, their femur will change shape more, that gives the joint more excursion. Um again just think of them as they are much more fluid than we are and therefore I can bend and twist them they're like they're like stretch Armstrong you know more so than uh, what we would perceive as as the the typical hardened skeleton and so of course they can represent more more movement um because they just have greater options in regards to changing their physical shape
1: Yeah yeah that that definitely makes sense one thing I guess I had in mind, I mean, I've seen this in a number of elite athletes and I think track and field is a really good place to see it because you see a lot of extremes and a lot of specialists and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like I was watching a video of uh Femke bowl just set, I think she set the indoor 400 world record or something like that, or, or some sort of, maybe it was the 500 or maybe it was a couple recently. Uh, and it's yeah. someone who has incredible speed endurance, and especially at the yeah. end of her races, like she's she's not slowing down in the same way that her competitors are. And I watch some of her lifting videos and it's pretty clear that she has a lot of compression in her spine. Like she doesn't have a lot of overhead range of motion in her snatches. Yeah. You can just see there's a lot. Nor of- does she need it. Yeah. And, it, <laughs> but the thing is, it's so interesting because you watch her arms and it almost seems like that compression is really helping her. Like it's almost because there's less options, I guess for her arms to go back, it almost keeps her torso and everything a little bit, I guess you could say tighter. Maybe that's not a great word, but it. it it seems to be helping her because she's able to keep her torso together a lot more easily than her competitors, especially once she gets in latter stages of the race. At least that's what I'm perceiving with it. So, I guess I sure. I look at it from that perspective of, here's an example of somebody who whose body is just really a skeleton has compensated into something that has really helped them for that event. Now, if, if she was a, a soccer player or a baseball pitcher, it's a different story because you have different, now you have to rotate more, things like that.
0: Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. No, there's, there's without question. Okay. So when you think about, about running, so it behooves her to be as efficient as possible. So once again, if I have too much relative motion, there would be a dampening effect. So if she rotates too much, that means with every ground contact, she has to try to control more rotation. Well, that takes effort. Yeah. Well, that's going to take energy away from the event in, in and of itself. So we're actually making her more energy efficient by taking away some of the elements of range of motion. Now, if I stiffen her optimally, now she stores and releases more energy per unit of deformation. So, so here you go. Uh, take the, your, your typical jump stretch bands or whatever. Take the really thick band and then take the really skinny band and then deform them to the same degree. So it's easier to pull the skinny band long, harder to pull the fat band longer. Mm, But if I can pull the fat band back as long as the skinny band and I release release both of them, which one has more energy stored in it? Which one would you rather get snapped in the face by? Mm. It's like, okay, I do not want to get snapped in the face by the big band because there's a lot more energy coming at me under that circumstance. So the same, same principle applies under this. Circumstance. I make her stiff enough. So why does she strength train? Because I need her to be stiff. I need, I need her to be able to transfer more energy through her connective tissues because that's where the energy storage and release actually takes place. So her ability to produce force via muscles actually makes her more efficient at storing and releasing energy in all of her connective tissues, skeleton included. This is one of the things that's underappreciated is when you're bouncing across the ground. Your skeleton is very difficult to deform, but for every unit of deformation and its ability to spring back in the opposite direction, it's the stiff spring in the system. So it's like your shock absorbers on your on your car. If you've ever tried to try to compress a shock absorber by squeezing it between your hands, it doesn't move at all. But it can it can control the shock absorption of a car that weighs, you know, who, who knows how much? A thousand pounds. There's a there's a, a total difference in the in the the ability. Of of this shock absorber to represent what it can actually do. And so that's one of the reasons why we do strength training is, is like I'm trying to optimize the stiffness of the system under a specific circumstance where, you know, she's probably a, a, a very high force producer. If I create the same level of force production in a soccer player, if he has to run down a ball, he's probably going to get there first. If he has to run down a ball and then change direction, now I might actually have a problem. Because now he's too stiff, and I've taken away some of his performance-related elements. So again, we have to be very specific about context. We can't blindly say like, oh, so she's fast. So she strength trains like this. If I want to get fast for my sport, I actually might be taking something away. It's like if I'm a basketball player, soccer Mm -hmm. player, tennis player, right? Too much force production and not enough change of direction.
1: Yeah, I I like that exa- that example of the rubber bands, like the thick rubber band and the the skinny one that stretches so easily. I just think it's so cool to apply some of those concepts to the body because it just paints a good picture too, and it makes me think about like where do you want your rubber bands to be? You know, either you know if you're a baseball pitcher or a javelin thrower, you want those bands to be a little more, to have a little more length or just to be able to pull, you know, and and like you said, that fat band, you could pull a really long way Well, maybe that's the best situation if you can create that. And it's, it's interesting to think, I guess, you know, based off, it does have so much based off the athlete in front of you. I remember when I was, I think this was about eight years ago, I did Whatever to the to whatever the level of my status uh, statistics ability was, (laughs) I ran. I forget what I maybe I used an online program, but I ran a correlation on decathletes, and it was a correlation between their hundred meter dash ability and their javelin, which are two Mm -hmm. you know like the femke Bull example, like just pure linear speed versus something where you need a little bit more compliance and it there was uh inverse correlation like and, and you're going to get right. some occasional people who can do both well but the average was that generally if you were a good javelin throw it actually was derogatory to your 100 and vice versa right. <laughs> and that's right. why that really interesting
0: yeah well okay you think about your you think about your approach when you're when you're throwing the javelin are you running at top speed no why don't you run at top speed? Because it stands to reason it's like if my horizontal velocity and then my, my angle of projection of the javelin, it's like those, those two would work together to produce the best javelin throw. But the problem is, is that I can't produce the movement necessary to throw the javelin at peak velocity if I'm running at peak velocity because I can't turn, right? So, so again, it's like you start to see these, these relationships and then how they interact in, in performance. This is why we have to be so aware of the the secondary consequences of the programming that we're using. Because again, once again, we, could, we can take this, we can take something that's so important to us from a performance perspective or health perspective and just take it away by accident.
1: Yeah. So I think that a question, a question that a lot of people would have that would be probably a lot more general in nature. And, and again, it's going to be always different across the spectrum of athletes, mm-hmm. but maybe if we If we lumped athletes into, let's say, the general field sport athlete, you know, like a football, Uh soccer, you know, uh, and we would say, all right, well, what bands should be thicker and fatter and less and have less pull and which one should be thinner and and stay longer? You could almost think, okay, well, I could probably do single leg work, like single leg gym type work and maybe put a little more tension in that system. But then when you get to, let's say, a deadlift or a hex deadlift or something, well, that might be where... Maybe a little more caution, you know, is needed because you have to monitor that and what's actually going on there. Do you have Do you have any thoughts if we are generalizing? Say, let's say the general field sport athlete, and and yeah. just in terms of all right, what st- what springs or what bands can we can we be a little bit more liberal with in terms of of yeah. compressing or making fatter? And which ones do we need to be right. more mindful? Oh, so, this
0: is this is this is like it, it's it's crazy easy if we if we use like a contextual example. So let's just take depending on who's listening to this, we're going to say American football. Okay. So I have offensive linemen, I have wide receivers, I have quarterbacks, and then I have running backs and I have linebackers. So let's just narrow it down to that, okay? And so then we think about, okay, who needs to turn the most? Well, my quarterback probably needs to turn the most because he's got to throw. So there's a lot of rotation associated with throwing. So how much bilateral, symmetrical, heavy strength training would I want to impose upon I want as much as I need to get the best force production in a very short, time-constrained activity, which is throwing. So there's a very small window where, where peak force is going to be applied. Anything outside of that is going to be velocity-based, which requires a greater ranges of motion. And now I can say, okay, well, what's the next, next person that would be similar under those circumstances? Well, so I've got a wide receiver that, that has to be able to run very very quickly, but also change direction. And so he's going to be very similar. But look at their physical structure. So I have a, I have a linear structure on a quarterback. I have a, a very similar linear structure on a wide receiver. But he doesn't probably need as much turning capability as the quarterback might need. So I can do a little bit more of the bilateral symmetrical strength oriented stuff there because he does have to run really fast in straight lines on occasion. Like he really has to pick up some top speed. So depending on what type of pattern he's got to run, he's got to be able to put the pedal to the metal, so to speak, and and, and run really, really fast, Okay. Now, I start to look at the other extreme, which is the offensive lineman, okay? So how much turning do I want them to be able to do? Well, typically, if an offensive lineman gets turned, the quarterback is complaining because he's laying on his back looking at the stadium lights because he just got sacked because we don't want our offensive lineman to turn very much. Same concept with with a defensive lineman because if a defensive lineman gets turned, a hole opens up, and then we have a 50-yard run or or the quarterback has plenty of time to, to, to throw his pass. And so then you can start to see it's like, okay, so the, the the bigger, wider representations have, number one, they have a mechanical advantage against turning because of their physical structure. If I can enhance that capability, their force production goes up. So an offensive lineman, by tradition, takes a few steps. Um, there's a bit of a six-second wrestling match that takes place where he has to hold position or, or advance his position. So again, I don't I don't want him to turn. So I'm going to drive a lot more bilateral, symmetrical, heavy-oriented strength training in that individual because, number one, that's what those exercises are for. They are there to take away the ability to turn, to increase our ability to produce force at very high levels and for longer durations. But the more I, I have an athlete that needs to turn, change direction, now, now I have to sort of titrate how much of that I'm going to put into the program because it's still useful. It's always useful up to a certain point. And then kind of like we've been talking about since the beginning of the conversation, then it becomes detrimental at some point, right? So when we're talking about those athletes, we have to say, okay, what is the context that they have to perform in? How much rotation do I need? What are their force demands? Do they need to produce peak force very, very quickly? Or do they have to sustain that force over a longer period of time? Well, then the longer the force is produced, the higher the force The more I'm going to use these bilateral symmetrical, traditionally heavy exercises where we teach people not to turn in those circumstances. Like, how much turning do you want in your back squat execution? Right? Because we know that under load, if I'm twisting, okay, now I'm really going to put some, some stress on certain structures that I do not want to stress under those circumstances. Right? So, so again, it's, it's observation, understanding context, and then going into the, the training realm and saying, okay, what is the best choice under this circumstance? And then how much volume of this is going to be be optimal? We don't know from the get-go. We don't know. We can't make that decision. This is something that you discover in real time. and, and But this is why programs are progressive. This is why you don't write a 12-week program with the understanding that everything is going to go perfectly as planned, right? We're always making these changes because again i'm tracking performance related indicators throughout to make sure that the program is achieving what i am intending
1: yeah with the just bilateral lifting as well i, I am curious so for somebody who let's just say you had like a track sprinter or something someone who only <laughs> has to go in a straight line they can probably afford to you know be pushed forward in terms of their center of mass more than other people i found this well n of one for me but i I've, I've had this happen to a lot of track athletes especially when i was in my 20s like some athletes did more lifting and did just fine. Some athletes came in and it just did not help their elasticity, their springiness. I mean, a little bit, but it. it there was some events that struggled way more than I would have thought, even though they got a lot stronger. And oh, yeah. so, are, are there outside of the turning element, like like from the, an element, maybe like just general joint stiffness? Is that because I know for me when I was in my mid to late 20s, and especially once I started getting into more powerlifting in my early 30s, I, the lowest actually my standing vertical ever registered on the Just Jump was after about maybe four or five months of doing powerlifting. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and it, it killed me. And I'm, I'm a, a very narrow ISA type person for reference sake too. I mean, not that I hadn't done lifting before, but this was like where I took it and I really, I mean, it was literally almost all I was doing for training and I really ramped it up. So, I, I'm just curious outside of the rotational equation as well from just maybe a, a shape change, a stiffness, what other things would we be looking at in terms of that compensatory action of lifting that might also go beyond rotation?
0: You mean As far as negative consequences? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. as far as negative to like athleticism. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. yeah, sure, sure, sure. So, so you're going to have connective tissue uh, adaptations that are going to be associated with the heavy lifting. So, so I increase the stiffness. Well, that can be great. So, if, if I increase the stiffness, what that means is that for, for the every unit of deformation, I'm storing more energy, which means if I release that energy, that could be very favorable. But what if I make myself so stiff that it's much more difficult for me to deform it within a time constraint? So, jumping, throwing, things that, that, that are, are very fast activities, right? If I can't deform it in time, in a time constraint, now it, it it takes too long. And that's why you start to see the decrement in performance. If there's no time constraint, powerlifting is a great example. It's like there's no timer. There's no timer on on the lifts. Like all you have to do is keep moving and then finish the lift. Well, I can sustain that force production over a longer period of time. I could put enough load on me that I can deform the the tissues and store and release energy. I just need the time to do it in, and so again, that becomes favorable under those circumstances. But now, take a take a situation. Since you brought up narrow ISA, it's like under under those circumstances. By tradition, narrow ISAs have a smaller window in which to apply the the downforce in. And so, if I increase their force production and they start to expand the duration of force application that's outside of that window, mm. what happens is they have to squeeze themselves tighter and tighter from the top down. And so, then what happens is there's a, a pressure gradient that goes from the top of you downward instead of bottom up. And so, under those circumstances, I'm sticking you to the ground when it's time for you to produce force within a, within a narrow time window. And so, literally, I don't have the right direction of a gradient. And so this is why you would see a, a, a decrement in in vertical jump in somebody that is over strength trained versus somebody that would be optimally trained where they're still able to create the gradient in the appropriate direction, which is uh, against gravity versus with it.
1: I love that. Yeah, I'm, I actually, I was just writing two notes as you were talking because I, these are, I mean, it's <laughs> this whole the whole thing is near and dear to my heart in the sense that I just look at how my own body and athleticism like shape shifted over the years. Going yeah. from like my senior year in high school, and I I started lifting when I was like twelve. I drug weights up to my bedroom from the basement to my bedroom. It mostly just did like bench presses and wall sits and arm sure. curls and stuff. And I. I tried to squat once. I tried to put the old concrete weights on my back and squat. And I didn't know how to do it, so I was like, ah, "This feels weird." I'll just keep doing my leg extensions or whatever. And I didn't start getting into more of the multi, you know, the squats and the traditional stuff till later in high school. But I don't think I really got to a place where I was really compensating heavily till till later. But the top down versus bottom up thing is so interesting because I was thinking about this in in the form of jumping and. And mm-hmm. I I will say too the 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 time maybe I can touch on that that time that window you have later because that makes all the sense in the world too it's like as soon as you start missing that window or getting outside of that window you're kind of screwed because <laughs> you yeah. have to use do, do a different strategy but I look at I look at like how I jump now and I wish I had the, the, at least the double leg jumps from high school but a lot of times when I jump now and I've changed my training but I think the some of the shape change stuff is certainly still there. But I kind of do a big, like if I'm doing a running two-leg jump, and I am internally rotated through my femurs as well, so I know this plays a role. But it's kind of like, I treat it almost as like a big trampoline where my legs, and I'm trying to create this picture for people, but I'll I'll do a step into the plant and my legs will hit one, two, and then my knees both, and I think everybody does this to a degree, but mine both really turn in and then it's almost like creates a platform for me to take all the pressure and whip of my upper body and bounce it off my guts and go upwards mm-hmm. and I think I've always had that, but I almost feel like that's a strategy that I don't know just as you were saying like you've you've become top down now instead of bottom up and i watch I watch like Mac McClung in the dunk contest and it seems like his legs work so well independently and his his heels could get so high off the ground so quickly early it's almost if I was to try to put a bottom-up strategy into words, <laughs> I would put a video of him dunking and be like, yeah, that that seems to be way more the body working as one connected unit versus this like legs hit, internally rotate, create a platform of the pelvic floor, create less pressure down from the top, bouncing into the guts and then going upwards. I'm trying not to get too complicated with this, but I just it's just something that I'm trying to put what you said together here.
0: But, but the tra- the trampoline example is 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 the one that I'll frequently use because that's exactly what's happening it, when you when you look at the internal dynamics and the amount of load that gets applied to the to the outlet of the pelvis. If I cannot reverse that, then you're not going up, right? So we'll see people with with very specific physical configurations to their skeleton. That you know, when they walk in the door, that they're never going to leave the ground. Like there are people that are biased by their physical structure that have an increase in a downward in a downward force physically by structure Mm -hmm. and and, um, and the unfortunate circumstances, you know, the the parents will bring in a young athlete and. You know, Johnny needs quicker feet. Johnny needs a better mm-hmm. vertical jump. And it's like, and the reality is, is that like Johnny just picked the wrong parents. We're really sorry about this. Now it doesn't mean that we can't improve the performance because if we understand his physical structure, there are things that we can do to improve his performance, but he won't be necessarily the fastest kid in the group. He won't be the kid that can jump the highest, no matter how hard you try to train him, just because of, because of circumstance. But, but the, the thing that you're recognizing in regards to from, from a technical perspective, is that's exactly what you're trying to do, is you're trying to, to optimize your ability to control the internal dynamics, the external forces, and then reverse the the downward process to to try to leave the ground. And this will evolve over time. You probably notice again your 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 technique has probably changed over time. Well, you know, if you don't store and release energy the same way you ever did in your limbs, well, that's going to change over time. So then the strategy is going to have to change your ability to control the internal dynamics. So when you look at the the pistoning element of the internal fluid dynamics of the axial skeleton, it's like that's what you're reversing. Hmm. And if you have a shape or you have an outlet behavior that does not allow those guts to go down and then back up and then, and your bias is downward, guess what? You're going to take away your verticality under all circumstances.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The top down bottom up thing is something that, you know, I don't know if we'll have time to really get into it on the show. Maybe we can continue to touch on it a little bit because that does, even with the way compensations go, uh, maybe that could be its own entire show, but I, the impulse, the, the time that window to create force, I'd love to get into that a little bit more, especially as it differs between the narrow, and the yeah. wide ISA archetypes, and I know for me, yeah, doing a lot of grinding, slower lifting has been not helpful. <laughs> all the all the times where I was uh, lifting and 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 it was the most the best athletic outcome, and of course it was multifactorial. It was never just one thing. But as I remember, it was either a doing full range of motion, deeper squatting, but with generally lighter weight, where the bar isn't really slowing down at all, and, and there's a lot yeah. of metabolic stuff going on. Or it was doing like a, a two-thirds of the way down squat to like a box and you tap and you go instantly. There's not, there's really no lag time or grind time. And then I also think about a lot of track athletes respond very favorably. And to my knowledge, probably narrow ISAs, more oscillatory uh, type lifting where you go to the bottom of squat and you oscillate, you bounce like quickly, like three times and then take those bounces up explosively. Do you have any thoughts on... um yeah, I'd just be curious as to your take on a narrow ISA's practices in the gym uh, totally. to not to not lose their ability uh, to not miss that window.
0: right. okay so yeah so we're, so we're talking about we're, from a physics perspective, we're talking about impulse, which is the again, force times time and and so if we take and we're going to talk about the extremes because it's just an easier representation to, to see. So we take the most extreme narrow ISA individual, we take the most extreme wide ISA individual. By bias, the narrow ISA is going to be biased more towards an externally rotated representation, which means that they have a shorter duration of force application because force is applied during internal rotation. So their impulse time by physical structure is always going to be shorter Mm. than the widest wide wide ISA. Their bias is more towards an internally rotated representation. They always have more time that, that they can apply the internal rotation. Now, the context will determine how much time they can apply internal rotation. So if I take a wide ISA pitcher and a narrow ISA pitcher, they both have similar constraints in regards to time. But when we're talking about about training and activity selection, your wider ISAs are going to be biased more towards those activities where higher force producers, strong exhalation strategies, longer duration of impulse. So again, this goes back to my, my representation of using American football. It's like this is an offensive lineman. It's like, oh, they don't really have this, this short time constraint. They're not running at top speed. Their, their feet are going to be applying force in the ground for much longer durations. They're going to be making physical contact in most cases with another human being. And those are sustained forces. And so so again, they're always going to have this longer representation of impulse time. You take your narrow ISAs, it's like, okay, I already know what your bias is going to be. You're going to be a velocity-based type of a person. It doesn't mean you can't produce high forces. It just means that that you're going to do it in a very, very small window. So your impulse times should always be shorter. If I train you with longer impulse times, there might be an increase in performance for a while, as long as you can continue to apply force in that small window. Mm, Once I start to expand that, I have now taken away your superpowers as as a narrow ISA. And now I have extended the window of force application into the space where you would produce velocity. Right, so I've just taken over that space, and so now space is gone. Now you no longer have your naturally structurally induced spaces to produce velocity. Right, so I've created my own interference to performance.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely what happened to me in my powerlifting stint. (laughs) My lifts went up, but yeah, I think I was probably so far outside of that reversal window, that reversal impulse window, that it was just this is this is
0: this is the answer to the question of how strong is strong enough? Yeah, right make it because that that is the determining factor it's like okay force production is great i want the most that i can but i have to respect this the physical structure of the individual i have to respect the context and the environment in which the performance is taking place
1: yeah what do you, what's your take on i mean obviously this is all still within the skeletal structure but if somebody mm-hmm. let's say a narrow isa type individual wanted to improve their squat ability you could obviously do quicker reversals or impulse, but I, my, a thought of mine is, well, what about doing something like a pistol squat where maybe it's less integrated into the ribcage and obviously you're still integrating the ribcage and pelvis, but could you, do you think you could be more grindy if you wanted to have someone who really like loved the weight room and wanted to get after it and you're trying to find a way that was probably the, the most applicable for them? I mean, do, what do you think about being a more grindy on something that's less integrated into it? It is obviously integrating the whole system, but what I'm saying is, could you be more grindy on like a pistol squat, so that's more single leg versus like a big bilateral, like a squat or a deadlift? Do you think?
0: Well, by by going into into a single leg stance, number one, you're reducing the absolute force producing capabilities. Yeah. So number one is like, okay, if as long as that's not detrimental, then potentially you you have you have a, a viable alternative from a long term strategy. I wouldn't necessarily use that to optimize force production. You brought up several excellent examples, and this is typically how you would do it when you're talking about like a touch and go, kind of a box squat, or you're using an impulsive type of of strategy. The the other thing that you have to be concerned with is when you're talking about about this type of activity is where are they applying this force relative to their base of support? Mm -hmm. So, So again, it's like they have a very small space underneath them in which they do apply this this force producing strategy. So, so once we start, you know, moving the the center of mass in one direction or the other, we're actually taking away their ability to produce force because we're starting to move them into spaces where the the external rotation would be more represented and this would be more velocity based. So, so again, we have to be very careful with the selection. Um, Pistol squats are not, I mean, think, think about from an external loading strategy, like right away you go, okay, that useful in certain regards in addressing some of the 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 side to side biases of our as far as force production might be concerned, but from an overall force production, we're probably not looking at a at a reasonable solution from a long term strategy.
1: Yeah, I mean balance is definitely going to be a limiting factor there to how much if, if, in terms of reducing degrees of fe- uh, freedom and how much force- you are
0: constraining. You, you are constraining the system. You are reducing the amount of relative motion. Which which, like I said, that could be beneficial, but there's a limit in regards to the to the force producing threshold because of the of the singular stance demands,
1: yeah. So actually, I'll just go back to that. I, I think I mentioned I'd, I'd like to touch on it briefly, or maybe I didn't. But I, I the re- I was intrigued by you, you mentioned we need relative motion, but there's certain movements where we are are going to reduce that relative motion to apply force. So in a a pist- so can you just go into how, uh, for example, what typical motions you would have that opposition between the femur and tibia, uh, that relative motion, and then mm-hmm. how does a pistol squat differ from that?
0: Well, okay, so under, under normal circumstance, as the knee begins to bend, so we're talking about a foot that's in contact with the ground. Okay, so, so we're starting to absorb ground reaction force, we're starting to apply more force into the ground. So this would be, say, the descent from, from standing. Typically, under the case of full relative motions, we would have a tibia that would be moving from a a relative external rotation to internal rotation because the amount of force production as you descend has to increase. And so I have to be able to internally rotate to apply that force under those circumstances. Okay. It'd be easier to demonstrate that in a bilateral symmetrical squat, because again, the the demands are less just in total load to the system. When I go into a single leg stance, the bias is going to be skewed more towards an externally rotated situation because of the single leg stance. So I've moved you off mm. of your, your, so where your center of gravity would fall between your feet, I am now shifting it towards one side. To do that, I have to take away relative motions. So this is one of the negative secondary consequences of doing pistol squats. There are going to be people that, that are, are born to do them because their bias as a, as a narrow ISA is going to give them a favorable representation where they live in external rotation. This exercise is actually performed towards an external rotation bias. So they may not have a great deal of negative secondary consequences. But, but the problem that you're going to run into, there, there's, going to be, there's going to be a group of people, and I'll, I'll, I'll pick on, on one thing. There's going to be a group of people that will always get knee pain under mm. that circumstance. The reason being is because when you're trying to produce force in an externally rotated representation, so I need a certain degree of movement at the knee, it's not necessary relative movement, because the relative movement would have both external rotation available and internal rotation. By biasing it into external rotation, I know I don't have full relative motion, so I'm going to be in a compensatory representation. Here's what happens as you descend, where I would typically have the capacity to involve, let's just say, vastus lateralis and vastus medialis equally. The bias in the descent of a pistol squat reduces the the contribution of vastus medialis in a lot of people, because I have to bend against the external rotation mechanics. So external rotation mechanics at the knee is actually a straightened knee. The only way that can bend against those mechanics is actually reduce the motor output of Vastus medialis. Mm. That creates a little bit of a pickle. And so when people have to do that, so so here's how you here's how you identify the people that can't release that muscle activity is they can't do a pistol squat mm. under certain circumstances, right? So they're they're gonna be really, really shallow with whatever their single leg representation would be. The people that can get really, really deep can tend to. Reduce the motor output in vastus medialis. That allows them to access the position of the bent knee against the straightened knee mechanics. So you have to be very, very careful in who you're selecting to do this type of an activity, right? One of the ways that you can offset some of some of these these mechanics is by using like an offset load. So you'll see people that will hold like a weight plate at arm's length or a kettlebell or something like that, and that allows some of these. Because you're you're altering the center of mass, um, you're giving them an opportunity to actually apply a little bit more internal rotation. Therefore, the mechanics aren't as restricted as they normally would be. And so, so all knee bending is not equal. And like I said, in a perfect world, we need to have these internal rotations represented at certain points in the descent. If I have to bend against those, I have to have the muscular strategy that allows me to do that, and that's not always a good place to be because again. High force production without enough internal rotation tends to be detrimental. When we, we look at, you know, take any good knee injury, like a meniscus tear or ACL or something along those lines, is usually associated with a rotation that should not have occurred.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see that rotational piece in there. And I think that it is interesting because when we look at single leg squats, so oftentimes the only thing that we look at is just stuff in the sagittal plane. <laughs> and there's a lot going on, especially you're staying on one leg now too. There's there's a lot of rotational pieces that go into that. So, just uh, I hate to generalize, but you mentioned the population that doesn't do well with a pistol squat. And, you know, actually it is funny. I've I've kind of gone through the years just towards... Uh, more if the the single leg stuff that i do a lot is more skater squats if i do a pistol it's just to a bench it's not all the way down or it's like a kind of off with the leg off a bench or i don't know how the regular full range pistols i don't even honestly even know if they were really truly in my program i mean i like doing them time to time but but, uh Uh yeah just just curious what those those more bigger general pieces that you're like all right doing a pistol squat isn't good for you like what do you what do you observe that someone wouldn't be a good candidate for that motion
0: well, again, it's like the, the concern that I have is, so again, by going into single leg and, and because of the external rotation bias, so the external bi- external rotation bias isn't, isn't, it's either an early position of absorbing force or a late position of delivering force. So there's mm-hmm. very little internal rotation. So internal rotation is down force. So it's the yeah. ability to produce force into the ground. Well, if I'm pushing against the ground to lift my body up, I better be able to push down. But again, in positions, take any, again, any decent injury, a lateral ankle sprain, a hamstring, like a biceps femoris hamstring strain, almost every knee injury known to man is is the attempt to apply force in inter- in external rotation into mm. the ground. Yeah. Doesn't work well. So number one, you can't apply maximum force in that position. And then something's going to pay the price because what I'm going to have is I'm going to have a shift of the center of gravity. I'm going to create an overload. This is how you get a hamstring strain. This is how Mm. you blow the medial knee out. This is how you roll the lateral ankle is by trying to apply force into this external rotation. So through simple observation, in many cases, you can see this. But if I had somebody that, let's just say I'm doing table tests on somebody, and I'm looking at tibiofemoral mechanics, and I have somebody that I can't even passively rotate the tibia into internal rotation past midline well, I know I have somebody that's that's going to have difficulty applying that force directly into the ground. I would not put somebody into a single leg stance activity until they have reacquired their ability to apply that internal rotation. So one of the reasons why you may find that it's better for you to do your single leg squat to a bench is because it keeps you able to access that internal rotation at the knee. It's instantly more comfortable and you feel yourself being more capable of applying that force into the ground. If you descend further below the level of that bench, you're kind of in no man's land now because you've given up your internal rotation to go past that level and you're never, you're either going to fall or you're never going to get yourself out of the bottom of the squat.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, it makes me even think about this was something that was so simple, but I had some right knee pain back, I don't know, five years ago or something. I was just walking up the stairs one day. And if I let my, this was an exaggeration, but it was just interesting because when I, as I stepped with my right leg that had the knee issues, if I let my knee really actually internally rotate, it didn't hurt to walk up the stairs. And, you know, so, so, I mean, it's not like, I mean, that's obviously I'm not going to play sports like that, but to me, it was just illuminating that okay, I, I need to have some level of this to mitigate whatever the heck's happening on the outside aspect of my well, knee. So again,
0: it, it, come, it comes down to, to very, a very simple representation. So when you're going up the stairs, you have to be, again, the, the, the position of the knee is in the, the so this is an early representation of, of absorbing force. To manage the forces, I have to be able to internally rotate the tibia. And again, if you're trying to do these things, in external rotation it's not going to fly you might get away with it for a while like mm. people do all the time but then eventually under under the right circumstance too much external rotation at the wrong time when you're trying to apply the down force and you're looking at a non contact ACL injury you're looking at a mm. meniscus tear you're looking at uh, again some form of like i said every decent injury that we'll see is going to be uh, in many circumstances somebody trying to apply force in the wrong position which is usually external rotation
1: yeah yeah, that's cool. I, I like that. I, you know, it, it is interesting because I think about being able to like resist the ground, like to be able to mm-hmm. balance, be explosive. You see people who their knees are kind of pointed more uh, bow-legged. Maybe is isn't the right word, but they have like their knee yeah, That's a
0: new hard representation. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's a knee that actually isn't supposed to bend.
1: Yeah, they and so, but then to be like the other side, we look at I look at like the explosive side is you do have that little bit of bow-leggedness, but then if you have the. Well, for every yin, there's a yang, you know, for every explosiveness to bring someone back, you need to also be able to internally rotate and it was, um, yeah, Rocky Snyder and out of Gary Ward stuff, just like the first time I ever did a step up where I actually purposefully got a good level of internal rotation. I was like, wow, I really feel my VMO here, my glute. This is this just feels really good. It's not necessarily... Right, they work together. Yeah, it's not yeah. necessarily the most, I guess, specifically explosive thing. Maybe in some positions that you'll end up in sport, like in terms of bouncing off the ground or all the bow-legged stuff. But to me, it kind of represented that, that polarity, you know, like there's that explosiveness that's a little bit more bow-legged, but then there's also, yeah, you need to also be able to Internally rotate on some level. <laughs> if- well,
0: again, in internal rotation. Internal rotation is the downforce. It's your yeah. ability to, apply, to to meet the forces that are coming that are coming up. And if you can't do that, and you know, you, you talk about about leg shape and things like that. To a certain degree, you're going to enhance that spring related phenomenon that's associated. So with with a straight knee and a slight bow in the leg, it's like a bow and arrow, mm. right? Yeah. Where does the, where does the energy come from in a bow and arrow? Well, you pull the string back, but it's the bow that's yeah. bending and storing the energy. So you, so you you think it's the it's the string that you're pulling back when it's actually the, the bow. So the leg is going to behave the same way. We take a straight line straight down from the hip on somebody that has like, and I'm not saying that bow legs are, are better than, than others. I'm just saying that in circumstances where you do have an explosive athlete that demonstrates something like this there's gonna be a certain point where there might be a performance enhancing benefit yeah. to this and then take them past that and then you're in big trouble. Yeah. So, so it's not it's not like something that you're intentionally trying to induce. What you're gonna find is, yeah. is that is that the natural selection of athletes as they evolve is going to, to show you that, oh, there's certain people that are like this. Like back in the olden days before you were born, when we used to talk about people like this, they used to train people to run pigeon toad. Because what they found was is is that is that these people that have this slight ER bias were the faster kids, and they would go, oh, they kind of run, they, they stand a little bit pigeon toed, or they they stand on the outside of edges of their feet, yeah. and they used to try to train that into people, which is the mistake, yes, right. Yeah. It that you're going to have people that are going to be predisposed to using certain strategies better than others, but that's just the external rotation bias. And again, these are velocity based um, based strategies. In some cases, it stores and releases a tremendous amount of energy. Take somebody past the threshold, and now you got a problem.
1: Yeah. I remember I, I had, um like six years ago, I was speaking with someone who had gone through a system that encouraged that bow-legged training, and mm. he had said he had, was getting some IT, you know, maybe they got better, who knows, but at the time, he was having a little bit of IT band, you know, issues because of that, you know, forcing somebody there instead of and I think there's a lot of ways to go about it. You know, I, I was thinking actually, as I've kind of gone through this, I think about when I was 21, I had my, that's when I jumped seven feet in track and field. And I I remember, you know, I, I wish I had more pictures of myself, but uh-huh. I do, the way I remember feeling and even sprinting, I think that just the nature of my training, not like trying to force alignments, but I, I feel like, um, you know, David Wex has said it well, it's like uh, something like structured dictates function but function repeated over time will have an influence on your structure and for me like I was doing a lot of training that evolved like even a lot of like long tempo sprints like you know seven by 200 running over hurdles like stuff but it was all quick and Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of short ground contacts where you're not really going down into the ground you're kind of bouncing off of it I feel like that could maybe naturally start to externally rotate you a little bit more to bounce as an adaptation and Anyways, it's just kind of thoughts of, uh, my thought is that if you got the bow-leggedness, and obviously your structure is going to dictate so much of how far you could actually even go, but I kind of, I feel like if you um, were training, and honestly, I almost feel like the adaptations or the compensations in that perspective show up a lot more, maybe more downstream, like more at the tibia ER ERing or something like that. Yeah, I, I work. Right.
0: You're gonna see a lot, you're gonna see a lot of external rotation of the tibia because um, it, I mean, so the, the the tibia evolved from a position of external rotation and it twisted mm. inward embryologically. Okay. So 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 the limbs are formed in external rotation, and then we turn them in as human beings from an evolutionary process which allows us to stand up and push into the ground, right? So you're always gonna be moving towards the external rotation bias. This is where everybody goes. Like mm. all compensatory strategies will lead you towards external rotation, right? Um, just be, again, you're just going home, as I would say, mm. because that's where you came from. Interesting. So you're gonna, you're, yeah. So you're always going to move in that direction. It, it, it's very important that we understand that we're talking about external rotation bias in regards to demonstrating velocity, right? So, so again, we don't want to say that bow legs are good, bow legs are better. It's just, one of the representations of the extra rotation bias that some people will demonstrate to a greater degree or a lesser degree. Um, I was making fun of, uh, we're actually looking at this with, with one of my colleagues and I was making fun of the actor, Robert Duvall. If you've ever seen Robert Duvall walk, it looks like he just got off a horse. <laughs> like, like, and then there's a, there's a scene in days of thunder where he's running away from Tom Cruise. And it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen, watching a guy with bow legs like that, try to run. He's not fast. Yeah, I right? Again, he's an older gentleman, but but point being is, is like that doesn't mean that it's better. It doesn't mean that it's good. It doesn't mean that it's the ideal. It doesn't mean it's something that we're chasing. We're just saying that it is a representation of one of the compensatory strategies. Some people will do it a whole lot better than others, and some people will not, because we have to take all of their structure into consideration yeah. when we're making training decisions, rehab decisions, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd mentioned on, I think it was the podcast with David that I had worked with a girl who was a, like a high level jump roper growing up and most certainly a narrow ISA. I think she was pretty internally rotated through her femurs, but it was crazy because it's almost like to at her compensation to be a good jump roper was to be so crazy pigeon-toed it threw off her gait like patterning. And it was just, it was just, it was interesting with that, with that adaptation. I actually, I worked with a swimmer once who it's right because swimmers, you you do not think of swimmers as being bouncy like bouncy balls on land. They're usually Typically the opposite. No. But I, no. I worked with a guy. He was the hundred free uh, high school record holder, and this guy was an athletic monster. Like on land, he could, I, and, and it was crazy. The first time he was ever in the weight room, he's like six two, six three. He just jumps up without warming up and touches like eleven four or something. And I think he that's, eventually
0: that's rare. Oh that yeah are a swimmer. Most swimmers are not land mammals. No, by
1: any no, not at yeah. all. And it's like, cause yeah, I, and yeah I, I do think that the joke was kind of like for short course, you could get away with it. 25 meter pool, more turns, the starts a greater percentage of the race long course. You're not yeah. going to get away with that as so much, but I, I did, I never really knew what was going on with this guy's legs when I was working with him. Cause I, I hadn't got far enough into these concepts. I just knew right. his legs seemed really twisted and he had huge calves. And I was like, that's weird. It's interesting. I was like, "That's interesting," but I realized now he had kind of internally rotated femurs, really externally rotated tibias, and monstrous calves, and he could just bounce like he could do three sixty dunks. He said he jump roped a lot when he was young. He's like, oh, "I just jump roped all the time. I just did all these like different, like just a little quick little." Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I just always found that interesting. How he got that way? How did his body compensate right. that way like over I said, time?
0: That's that's it's crazy rare that you would see. That you would see the somebody that can move vertically, that that is also a good swimmer because the yeah. the swimming bias is so different from, you know, from a, a, like a land based athlete, right? Because the the environment demands so many different things from somebody that would typically be able to push off the ground. And that's that's remarkable.
1: Yeah. No. It was that was. The only the only swimmer who could do a running jump with that ability. Most of them were pretty good at standing, or a lot of the sprinters were good at standing vertical. But as soon as you put two or three steps into it, it was just it just yeah. didn't work out nearly as well. That. So that was an anomaly. Uh, so just just really one last thing, Bill, before we finish our chat today is I did want to go back because I, I you know this is something that's interesting to me is the idea of strengths versus weaknesses. Right. Like you'll talk about, okay, well, your weakness is. Your strength is your speed, but your weakness is your power. So let's work on your power. And and I I could see that happening for a period of time. But it's like that, like you said, it's maybe there's that window where okay, now you're outside of the window of your superpower, and now maybe it's not so great anymore. And so yeah, you know, I am. You you I know you touched on this already, but I, let me maybe just ask a specific example because I just I find this interesting. Is something that uh, along the lines of squatting and strength that I found really helpful for narrow ISAs in particular is replacing squat volume with like basically like low squat hops. Like you get in a 90-degree position or somewhere around there and you're just doing a bunch of quick impulse-based squat jumps where you don't even try to draw it out. You're just kind of staying in a chair and driving your knees up and bouncing. And, and I see that being a really cool training tool for a narrow ISA. But I'm curious like, like for a wide and for angle individual… Who like I'm just curious because it seems to me like oh well it should, that should help them a lot too. <laughs> uh, I, I maybe I'm to, what degree,
0: I ask- to a degree it can yeah to a degree it can but but again you're 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 dealing with you're dealing with a different foundational structure that again they they have very specific biases as to where you're going to see the greatest degree of improvement. It's not that there wouldn't be a moment in time where yeah. that might be helpful, right? But again, it's like they they typically will have a longer impulse time by structure. Like, it's a brilliant strategy. Like, the fact that you recognize this is to your credit because you, you see it's like, oh, this long duration strength training works up to a point. It's like, but this person definitely doesn't have the same capacity to sustain the force output without a decrement in yeah. performance. Right. It, it's not that you can't do the same things with, with winds and narrows. But you just have to be very selective as to how much, how long. Yeah. Who, right. And so, again, it, the structural differences just need to be respected. And, and again, the, the amount of volume that you spend on something is certainly one of those things that concentrates the load and then promotes the adaptation. And that's what we have to, we have to attend to. Like that's where our understanding probably needs to improve
1: yeah that's the thing i the narrow selecting things that help narrows has come very intuitively and naturally to me because that's that's me so i'm like oh well, you I did feel it training like, like you feel,
0: feel it because yeah. that's that, that's you it's it, it's like you know yeah so this you know the sustained higher force stuff um may, just may be less apparent because again the sensations that you're used to it's like well what helped me in the past like oh they're mm-hmm. like me they're gonna feel this yes. it's like maybe maybe it's just a matter of you know, you, you you spend a little bit more time, and you say, "Okay, I need to sustain these force outputs." So this is a little bit different. So so how do I get a similar representation in a, in a wide ISA? Let's take your box squat example from earlier. Okay, short impulse time for the for the narrow ISA. But if I need connective tissue behaviors to enhance a wide ISA's behavior, I need him to actually deload onto the box, mm. so he actually does get the yielding action in the connective tissues and give him time to let them spring back. Yeah. Now I have now I have a solution that might get me a similar outcome to what I was doing with the narrow ISAs with the shorter impulse time. You see, how just you, you just yeah. slowly bring them towards one another to a degree.
1: Yeah, it's um like that low squat jump. I was t- that little impulse squat jump. I found that. Like I had like a football lineman I was working with and I'm thinking, all right, your impulse strength out of the, you know, coming off the line, that'd be awesome for you, right? But he really struggled with that movement. I mean, not just because he's, I mean, he's not a huge lineman, he's an athletic dude, but I found that that like putting hands on the side of the squat cage, giving more stability, maybe more opportunity to yield a little bit more for structures to yield, it seemed yeah, to be really, yeah. really helpful for him. So I, it just kind of, a lot of times I think to myself, how could I feel more of what a wide feels? Do I, maybe if I exhale a little bit <laughs> or try to like compress right. my skeleton. I, can, I, can, I, feel
0: I, I can tell you, I can tell you very, there's a very easy way for you to feel this, right? And let's use the box squat as a representation of this. So you, I'm assuming you, you went through a powerlifting phase in your life. So So you understand what it feels like to squat with bands and you feel what it feels Mm -hmm. like to squat with chains. Okay. All you got to do is load the bar with chains and then you will understand how a wide ISA applies force into the ground. Hmm. So you sit down to a box, deload to the box and stand up. And as the chains unload, that is exactly the same strategy that a wide ISA would use from an outlet behavior to produce force upward. Because what the chains do is they sustain the duration of force application. That's hmm. the difference between like the where the, a band is more of the elasticity, gut behavior that we talk about. Whereas the chain is like, Oh, I need to sustain the duration of force production. So yeah, it, it's a great way to slow down and narrow. Okay. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, which we may not want to do, but when you're trying to chase a sensation, to, when you're trying to yeah. gain understanding and you've never, you've, you've been like the bouncy explosive, you're a thrower, you're a jumper. It's like all of your contact times and all of your impulses are short duration. What does it feel like to sustain it? Put a bunch of chains on a bar, and do a do a deload to the box and then try to stand up that's exactly what a wide feels like
1: interesting that's so cool i just love examples where you can feel it not even not i mean describing it's great but i think ultimately uh, so much coaching comes out of what you felt it's like that right. visceral connection and so it's like okay feel what yeah. your athlete is feeling here i just th- just one one very last thing with that is would you say mm-hmm. you know with with narrows and squatting like stuff where it's explode off the you know tap and go impulse quick and go. Would you say that the bands and chains that's been debated, right? But like for so based. On I don't that think there's a debate at all.
0: Honestly, I don't think there's a debate at all in that because they are not the same thing. They represent totally different ends of the spectrum in regards to to how the behaviors are taking place. Um, I think it's, I, I, I think it's very recognizable that, that that like, like I would respectfully disagree with that. Oh,
1: um, I, I meant but, like debated as to like, Oh, should we use them with the athletes? Should we not? I meant more. I was, Oh, I think I'm, we should. Yeah. I'm yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was asking you. Yeah. Before,
0: sure. Um, especially. So let's go back to the previous example of the kid that can't leave the ground, can't bounce across the ground. This is where you're using the reverse band process, right? If I've got if I got somebody that doesn't have that physical structure, I'm trying to increase the, the ability to reduce the impulse time that's a band that's pulling you down into the box the chains like i said they're to sustain the duration of the force application so they're very specific applications it's not about like everybody should change to each one because i think that's how it's been promoted in the past mm. like oh you should go through a period of chains oh you should go through a period of top down band tension or bottom up band i don't think it's I, I think it's very very specific as to how it should be applied definitely useful for athletes it's just a matter of understanding the when to apply it
1: yeah based off of the way a wide Apologize produces, for jumping in there. And I oh, made in the total, totally fine but just based on what i was trying to ask too is like all right if i'm a, just generalizing narrows squatting more like i've found just more impulse bounce off you know don't grind but would a wide be better like if i had a bunch of let's just polarize it right and i know it's a spectrum but like i got a bunch of narrows and a bunch of wide ISAs in the gym and would yeah, I yeah, would yeah. You be would you be more likely to say all right, narrows? You guys are doing more impulse, oscillating, quick off the box, and wides. You guys are going to be doing more bands and chains and stuff. Would that be a, if I'm generalizing things? Would that be a, a yeah. accurate
0: from a, from a generalization standpoint? You're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right because it just it just lends itself to to need right. Yeah. If I have a narrow ISA. Again, because of the duration that they're applying for us under almost every circumstance, it's a very small window. It stands to reason that the, the, the goal, and obviously, if there's something that can be improved, so the things that can be improved are, are potentials that have not been developed, not true weaknesses. So to turn the narrowest of narrow ISAs, like I'm talking about the extreme representation here, try to turn them into a power lefter. It'll never work. They can. They will never be the strongest person in the room right? The strongest person in the room is going to be biased much more towards uh, higher force production, Stands to reason. When I have somebody that has high force production, but, but it's very difficult to deform tissues, store and release energy quickly, that's where the bands come into play. That's where the bands become very, very useful. In situations where I need to sustain force, through, especially through where you're going to notice it is through the middle range of a squat. That's the highest force mm that you're going to be applying through the range. It'll typically be associated with people, what people would call the sticking point. If you're having trouble with the sticking point, that's where the chains come into play because it's going to teach you to sustain and increase the force through that range. Absolutely. You're going to bias that stuff towards more wide ISAs. Doesn't mean that there's not good times to use the bands with narrows. It just means that again, we're, we're we're strongly generalizing this representation. It's like, it's like the, the force producers are going to benefit more from playing around with the, with the, the elasticity and the, and the chain load. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So yeah, for someone maybe just jumping into the middle of it a little bit. So if I was saying, Hey, I got a narrow ISA, someone's more elastic, short impulse times, but I do want to use some chains, maybe just like the lighter bands would be a good place to start. So prolonging their impulse time just a little bit, but you don't want to get them outside the window, right? Like if I really loaded I like, I like, it up. Well,
0: you're- We'll use we'll use chains with narrow ISAs, but we're using it at a very specific time and a very specific representation. And so, so this is where we're we're attending to bar velocities. Like, do I need them to sustain force uh, up to a certain point? Absolutely, I do. Okay, how fast do I need them to move through this range as they're increasing the amount of force production through this middle range? That's why you would use a chain, is because it loads that that element of the movement very specifically right it's it's where i have it where i have an alteration in shape change it's where i have an alteration in the breath mechanics it's the yeah. alteration in the pelvic outlet mechanics that's where i need the load to occur then i need to be be able to load that range and the chain is is a brilliant strategy to use under those circumstances
1: got it makes sense so uh, just one very last thing because otherwise it'll be on my mind and I'll just be thinking about it. <laughs> but, but like the other way around, so I got a wide eye, I'd say someone who does well with that window of longer force production. But I, it's like, well, right, well, sport is so many windows of fast impulse. And maybe we aren't even talking football linemen. Maybe we're talking, maybe it's soccer, maybe it's something else. And I want to make them more impulse oriented. And so, I mean, my thought is, hey, like, I love the quick impulse plyos. And and I I wonder, I mean, would it be, it almost strikes me that maybe, you know, they could handle that better than a narrow could handle, hey, I'm going to load you up massively in the weight room and now your shape change or whatever. Like, it almost seems like it would almost be, this is just from my experience and how I felt, but that for me being a narrow, being exposed to too much of my weakness had negative issues. But, if you took a wide and just have to do a lot of fast stuff, I don't necessarily see that being a, I guess a terrible thing. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm just curious your well, thoughts it, on that.
0: So, so so again, here's here comes the question. Here comes the question it is is so you, what you're dealing with is you're dealing with a connective tissue behavior issue. It's like how stiff are they? Too stiff, they don't deform. That means that they don't store and release enough energy. Can you teach them to store and release more energy by doing the impulsive activities? Potentially. Yes. Okay. So you run the test, you train, and then you say, well, what was the outcome? It's like, Hey, we're not getting enough of this yielding behavior, the connector tissues. What's the next best way for me to give them enough time to deform. So I can actually train that element. Then I can actually come back to the short impulse stuff. And so this is where you would implement, say a box squat with a deload. And the band tension pulling them down onto the box, because what that actually does is it alters the pelvic outlet behavior to store and release more energy, right? So I'm actually training the concept that is the limiting factor in the bouncy stuff. So I do a phase of that type of training. I improve their yielding capabilities. And then I go back and I say, okay, now we're going to shorten the impulse time because I know I have an improvement in the connective tissue behavior. Now I'm going to utilize it.
1: Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. There was just one other thing I was thinking about with that too. Is if you took a wide and had them do too much stuff that's like fast and out of their wheelhouse. You know, it was funny. I remember I worked with the uh, swimmer who was the 2012 Olympic gold medalist in the 100 freestyle. This guy was a monster, just physical specimen, big, strong. But if he did too much fast work, I remember talking with this coach and. He's like, yeah, if he does too much fast, quick stuff in the weight room, it actually overtrains him or his nervous system gets you know, burnt or whatever. And I was thinking, I was like, at first, I'm like, how could this be? This guy is so explosive, 50, 100 freestyle. But you know, and now I'm thinking, well, maybe if your bias is you're good at force-producing a little bit longer and now I ask you to do all this fast stuff that's under that window, maybe it's just really neurologically taxing to try to do that too because it's just not... The way you typically produce force. Maybe that you well, know, it, could play it, in as well.
0: You're, you're potentially biasing towards a stressor that he doesn't have the adaptive capability.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It, it could be like if he think about this if you're already capable at a certain level and I train you farther in that direction, again, this is where we have to optimize versus maximize, right? So, again, if he's already capable of doing certain things and you take him past a certain threshold, that's where you again, you yeah. start to create interference. It's like maybe. Maybe he can tolerate a certain volume of of something, and then again, it's the volume of it. It's not it's not the activity in and of itself, but it's how much you've asked them to do, and you're creating some measure of fatigue, and then that becomes the decrement in performance.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. I, I just love you know the complexity of it all, and like as you. Go throughout the. But this stuff is hard. Yeah, man. It, it's hard. I just, I think though too, it's always good to remember that ultimately the solution is really not that hard. Like it's not, you don't have to have this crazy fancy exercise. It's a simple exercise you end up giving somebody. But it's just understanding the layers helps you to make the right decision or a better decision or something that involves a little bit more facets of all the factors I, that are involved. It's true. Awesome. Well, hey, Bill. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was great that we great. finally could get this time together to chat. Uh, and I know you got a couple of things going on, like a, a podcast, a new um, training product out. Uh, do you, is there anything Wait. you want to share before we yeah. get off the phone? Yeah. So,
0: so uh, my buddy Chris Wykas and I are doing the the Reconsider podcast, and basically, we're just taking topics that are sort of common in the in the industries that we're involved in. And and breaking them down and just trying to ask better questions, looking at things differently. Some things are just blindly accepted as being good or bad. It's kind of like the beginning of our conversation. It's like we're talking about compensation. Well, it's not good. It's not that <laughs> it happens all the time. It's just is it is it helping or is it hindering? So we're looking at a, just a variety of different topics that way, and then uh, associated with that, it's more directed towards the the consumer end of things. For those people, there's there's a gap that that needs to be filled with with people that. You know they don't fall into the category of physical therapy patients. They don't need to go through rehab. But every time they try to to start a program, you know they, they they find something that they're interested in, and then they find that that they don't have the capacity to even execute that program. And then they do run into an obstacle. Maybe they do experience uh, some pain or or some form of interference. So what we've developed is is it, Chris Chris is brilliant. He he says it's the program before the program. And so, so that's what we 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 have um, through our, our recon program. So at reconu.co dot um, You can you can access that. So if, if you're trying to make the comeback to the gym, you're trying to come back to a sport, you just want to move and 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 be comfortable. Um, we have different different levels of, of programming for that for those people that are just they're they're just trying to make the restart. They're trying to make their comeback. So those are the big things that are going on, but uh, always uh, accessible. Through uh BillhartmanPT.com. If you want to hang out and talk tech, we got a bunch of coaches that meet at 6 a.m. every Thursday morning on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. There's no charge for that. We all hop on a big Zoom call. and So we get like 30, 40 people going in in those conversations, and that's every Thursday. So lots of ways to to gain access and, and join the conversation.
1: Awesome. Well, it sounds good. Well, thank you again so much, Bill. It was great having you on the show.
0: Appreciate you having me.
1: Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I appreciate you all. And if you want to help us out, you can leave us a rating or review on Spotify, iTunes, whatever you're listening to this show on. We'll see you all next week with another great guest. Have a good one.